Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Dan, thank you so much. And honestly, I'm raising my right hand for the first time for that mercifully short introduction. Uh, by the way, uh, Dan and I became very fast friends uh, yesterday. Uh, uh, as he uh, alluded to, and I kid you not, I left, uh, was supposed to leave Washington uh, yesterday at 3.30, and I ended up in uh, Columbia at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'll let you figure out five delays, a thunder shower, and a diversion, and when the pilot apologizes for flying you unexpectedly into Charlotte, North Carolina at midnight, you know you're not in the right place. Uh, we were texting the whole time. Uh, the important thing is that... Um, by God's grace, everybody was uh, safe. And by the way, uh, living in Washington, D.C., you've heard of Washington, 68 square miles surrounded by reality. Uh, it's very nice to be back in the United States of America this morning. Uh, I, I really love South Carolina. Uh, and uh, of course, it's March Madness and St. Patrick's Day. So what, so what, what, what could be better? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I want to pretend, if I may, for a moment, that we have all been uh, best friends for 100 years. Because uh, I'm going to let down my guard today. And uh, I remember when your president and I first spoke about my coming. And uh, you will remember our very first conversation when I said, I want to come to Columbia to talk about failure. Failure. We don't talk about failure inside the Beltway, do we, Thomas? Everybody in the Beltway is one mountaintop after the other, right? It's like those Christmas letters we all receive at the end of the year, right? Everybody's healthy and happy. It's been a year of mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. Little Susie has memorized all the books of the Bible backward, right? Thomas, uh, you know, is shooting uh, 500 baskets a game. Everything is great in our family. And we know as Christians that this really is just not the case. Uh, I want to say uh, first, if I may, that the person who's holding the microphone standing in front of you this morning is a poor, miserable sinner, saved by grace. By the way, here's my right hand for the second time. It's worth everybody in this beautiful chapel today spending five minutes at some point today just praising Jesus Christ for grace and mercy together. You know, I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I was born into a very middle-class family. My father, my best friend still, age 85, a painting contractor. Uh, my mother, who's gone to heaven, uh, an extraordinary lady. I grew up in a happy home, praise God. I say that with, with genuine humility and not arrogance, a very happy home. Two brothers, a sister, married, children. You know, I had a front seat at the American dream. It was a wonderful way to grow up. Uh, I'm also a nerd. Uh, I'm a sports fanatic, but I was always the guy on every team picked last. 
Oh, yes, we forgot Tim. Yes, well, come, come join our site, you know. Um, and I always loved, from the time I can remember, this connection between politics and the press. This fascinating world of journalism. I, I remember as a boy watching what we used to call the evening news. And I remember uh, watching all of these correspondents all around the country and the world. And I thought to myself, what a remarkable profession and vocation that would be. I was born into uh, a Christian home. And I remember, you know, if you forget everything I've said, please remember this. I remember having a conversation with my great dad when I was about nine or 10 years old. And my father's answer was the following. He said, I don't care what you do, just make sure that when you choose what you're doing is your profession, and this is my great dad, make sure that you are singing, he said, when you go over the mountain. He said, if you choose in that way, you will feel like you've never had to work a day in your life. I think that that's very consistent with what our Lord and Savior taught us about the meaning of life. And I, I might say providentially, and I really do mean this, providentially, I had a maternal great-grandmother who knew that I was a voracious reader. And she said to me, anytime you ask me for a book, I will say yes with the agreement when I purchase it for you that you will read it. I, I remember this pledge as a boy. May I tell you the world of books and reading has opened up a world to me. And as a young boy growing up in Fort Wayne, it was world upon worlds. I graduated from high school off to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, home of the Ernie Pyle School of Journalism, one of the top journalism programs in the country. For those of you who don't know, and there's no reason that you should, Ernie Pyle was the greatest correspondent of World War II. In fact, he died with the troops in the South Pacific. Hand over heart, I think I have read and reread every word of reporting that Ernie Pyle ever wrote. It is lyrical, it is methodical, it is evocative, it is powerful journalism. And uh, I came back to my dorm room one day as a junior, and I received a telephone call from a woman in my hometown. And she said, I've just gotten off the telephone with a friend, and I would like you, she said, to apply for an internship in the United States Senate. And my reply to Betsy was, I was born on Autumn View Drive in Fort Wayne, Indi Indiana, Betsy. I don't, I don't think they're taking many. In no, 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 I want you to apply. And she said, and I quote, I want you to be bold. Bold. Went through the interview process received another telephone call. You've been accepted. You need to be in Washington, D.C., Memorial Day weekend. 
And for the next two and a half months, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, I met all the other young men and women from around our nation as interns. It was a remarkable summer. I realized I needed to get out more in my life. I remember having dinner one night with a young woman who said to me, you don't know what the Mississippi Delta is? I remember having a, a large lunch with a group of interns. And one of the young men was from Saratoga, New York. He spoke at length about the centrality of the Battle of Saratoga in the American Revolution, and I had no clue what he was speaking about. It was a remarkable summer. I'm also a tennis fanatic, and I'm a people person. I love people. Dan will confirm that my only regret in departing Columbia today is that I can't spend nine hours with all of you. I would love that. It was a great summer. And the next summer, I applied for another internship in the House of Representatives, and by God's grace, got that. One summer in the Senate, one in the House. My great mentor at Indiana University had been a top producer at NBC News, Dick Yoakum. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to help arrange an internship for you at NBC News in Washington. You work in the House Monday through Friday, and then NBC News on Saturday and Sunday. Church first, he said. He knew me. And I remember taking the bus up Tenleytown Avenue in Washington to NBC News, where, by God's grace, another world opened to me. Now, I want to pause for a minute. I would like to be able to share in this chapel today that all these doors opening in my life was building in me a sense of humility that was rooted in Jesus Christ. And I'm very sorry to confess to you on this otherwise beautiful morning that that was not the case. In fact, I've come to Columbia to tell you that pride sneaks in on cat's paws. And pride is a kind of poison and toxin. I'll even be dramatic with you. Pride is lethal. Anybody here ever heard of J.C. Penney? I remember going to J.C. Penney for the first time to buy a suit that I was going to wear that summer. And the salesman must have had a sense that I was a bit too big for my britches. He said, you are going to be a big shot. And I'm very sorry to confess for a second time this morning that in my mind I thought, he's right, I am. Didn't he know I was on the elevator up? Didn't he know that this was about me? It was about my story. You know, I remember uh, concluding that internship in the House and at NBC News. And one of the very famous correspondents at NBC came to me and said, I want to I thank you for, and was just very complimentary. 
And I remember in the kind of think bubble of my mind, well, of course he should be grateful. This is very dangerous. This is our way of putting ourselves first and what Jesus Christ does in our lives second. I'm sorry to tell you all this morning that I was very good at that. You know, one thing led to the other. I graduated from Indiana University, first job at the NBC affiliate in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Within a year, I was promoted. I was the, uh, the executive producer of both the early and the late news, six and 10, as we used to call it. The writer, the producer, the editor, I'm sorry to confess to you all that one of my favorite things was to go to reporters, seasoned reporters, seasoned producers, seasoned photographers, much more wise than me, and to put them on assignment because, you know, that held myself up. And that's what all this was really about. In this order, me, myself, and I. That's a dangerous order. A to Z. And then something really remarkable happened. I'm sitting in the newsroom, and I see that the man who I interned for in the United States Senate has just been elected the Vice President of the United States of America. And the man whom I had interned for in the House of Representatives was going to be the newly appointed United States Senator for Indiana. And one month later, my telephone in the newsroom rang, and Dan Coates, the new U.S. Senator from Indiana, said, and I quote, I want to hire you. I need someone who knows something about radio and TV I'm going into two elections in four years. Can you be in Washington in two weeks? Now at that moment in my life, the first thing I should have said to the newly minted U.S. Senator of Indiana is I need to pray about this. I need to reason this and I need to be back in touch, but that I'm really honored to be asked this, you know, this remarkable offer. But I didn't. I let him know that I was very grateful, that I was very happy where I was, and that I would be back in touch. And I was, and I took the job, and off I went to Washington, D.C., I was like Napoleon at that moment, the conqueror in waiting. The world was waiting to meet me. You know, people who are prideful have something else in common. They have very large baskets full of self-deception and ultimately prideful people begin hurting the people who love and care for them most. Well, one year became two, 
two became six, and the next thing you know, I was the youngest press secretary in the United States Senate, the youngest communications manor, manager in the United States Senate, and I worked there for 10 years. 10 years in the US Senate is about 5,000 years in dog years. You know, they are long days and many weekends. A decade of my life. And then I received another phone call. This one was from the communications manager for the governor of the state of Texas. Her name was Karen. And she worked for Governor George W. Bush. Any Texans here? Um, she said, we need somebody, ready for this old-fashioned word, skill set. I had a skill set. And we want you to move to Austin to join the George W. Bush for president campaign. Now, by this time, I was married to Jenny, the love of my life. Our sons, Tim and Paul, were two and four years old. And I'd like to tell you all that it was about prayer and consideration and honor. But it wasn't. I had been selected by the governor of Texas, the man who could be president of the United States. And wasn't this going to be an adventure? We got into our Dodge Caravan. I took the job. We drove to Austin. And for the first two weeks, it was 112 degrees. Remarkable. Yes. We got through Bush, Bush v. Gore. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this. The most contentious, the most contentious presidential election in American history since the 1800s. We came home, Mr. President, at 3.30 in the morning, there was no president. Nobody knew who the president was going to be. Was it going to be Al Gore or George W. Bush? Our little man who had just turned five years old in Texas said to my wife, I thought somebody was supposed to win. <laughs> then I flew off for 32 days in Florida, nine cities in 32 days, and finally the Supreme Court determined that George W. Bush was the president. And I received a call from a man called Carl Rove, who was the architect of George W. Bush's victory. And he said the following, Tim, President Bush wants to make you a special assistant to the president and the deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaison, pause, do you accept? And I said, and I quote myself, Carl, you have to tell me what that means. Please translate. You will be the president's chief outreach person to America's faith community, the veterans groups, the think tanks and public policy groups. On and on he went. Now, in the Christian life, friend to friend, this is a moment for the humility of Jesus Christ. This is a moment of unparalleled gratitude. 
If at this moment in the Christian life you do not realize that you serve someone greater and something greater than yourselves, then you're really missing it. And I missed it. I deeply regret that. In fact, I'm ashamed. They took me to my office, 25-foot ceilings, marble, mahogany, brass. You know, I was like the train that pulled into the roundhouse when the balloons go up and the brass band starts playing and the poodle dogs are dancing. They roll out the red carpet, right? I had arrived. And I knew it. Mr. J.C. Penney Salesman was right. I, of Fort Wayne, Indiana, had become a big shot. This is very dangerous. And by the way, in all of our lives, whatever your particular challenge is, I say with genuine humility, we are all susceptible. This is how the devil works. The devil loves to identify yours and yours and yours and yours vulnerability. And then he begins to tap dance on the moon. You know, I uh, worked for George W. Bush for almost eight years. I was one of the longest serving senior commissioned officers in the White House. You know, I mentioned the Senate and dog years. Eight years at the White House in dog years is 14 centuries. Right? Your days begin at the crack of dawn and you don't know when they end. Air Force One, the Oval Office, traveling abroad, traveling, etc., etc., etc. What a pilgrimage Jesus Christ in his goodness and grace had given to Jenny and me and our sons. Now, in the middle of all of this, I received another telephone call. This from the editor of my hometown newspaper. Tim, he said, you're a good writer. Would you write some guest columns for the local newspaper? Don't write about politics. Write about all the other things you love. Tennis, the Chicago Cubs, movies, jazz, football. And I did. It was wonderful. I would receive beautiful notes and letters from people in my hometown. They would often use the word good. You're a good writer. No. They didn't understand. I was a great writer. I was like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Didn't they know? I was like Ernie Pyle. Had they not gotten the message? And one day, one day, I arrived back at my office at the White House, opened my email, and I'd like to quote to you an email from a journalist from my hometown. She said the following, Dear Tim, 
Did you plagiarize that column in the newspaper last week? Now, I am quite certain at the age of 58 that I have forgotten the words of most of the prayers that I have prayed in my life. But I've come to Columbia today to tell you all that I remember the prayer that I prayed after I received that email. I didn't kneel down next to my desk at the White House. I fell down. And my prayer was the following. Oh, God, oh, God. Because it was true. Not only had I plagiarized that column, I had plagiarized many other columns. And you know what? It wasn't because of stress or pressure or long days. I knew what I was doing. I was to blame me, myself, and I, with no extenuating circumstances. Pride, deep, toxic, poisonous pride, had finally caught up with me. I don't know if it's a word, Mr. President, but I promise you, I slunk out of the White House that day in a serpentine manner. You know, before I left, I had the best colleagues in the world. They wanted to circle the wagons. That's what they do in Washington. Surely this could not be true. Let's all get our legal pads out and write down what actually happened so that we can set the record straight. My friends, I promise you it was at that moment that I had my greatest liberation. I stood up at that meeting and I said to them the following, it's true. I walked out, I went to my office. I'm a low-key guy, I really am. I was shaking so badly that day I tapped out my resignation letter to the President of the United States, slunk out of the White House, drove home to Alexandria, Virginia. Now, this is, this is the most painful thing that it is possible for me to share with you. I walked into our home, and sitting on our couch was my wife and two sons. Now, if at that moment somebody had said to me, um, you can uh, have someone plunge a dagger into your heart, or you can hear the following words from your wife, which would you choose? I would choose the dagger. My wife, Jenny, we've been married 30 years, known each other, by the way, since we were 15 and 14, the love of my life. My wife, who had and has sacrificed everything for me. She's a truly extraordinary person. She stood up with tears in her eyes, and she said the following, I thought I knew you. 
Mr. Wordsmith at that moment had nothing to say. She was right. I went into the White House on Monday and began taking the pictures off the walls and cleaning out my desk. You know, I had spent my entire life as a Christian looking for the perfect Christian. And I found him in one of my best Jewish colleagues at the White House, Joshua Bolton, who was the president's chief of staff. He said, Tim, the boss wants to see you. Please come over. Now, at the White House, if it's good news, it's, uh, you know, please come on over. But then he said, uh, as soon as you can. I knew that I was sailing into my deserved woodshed moment. And I arrived at the Oval Office, and it was just the president and me. Oh, boy, this was going to be bad. He said, please close the door. Oh, dear. He walked to the middle of the Oval Office, as did I. And we stood there looking at each other face to face. I said, Mr. President, I owe you. And before I could get the words out, he said the following. You're forgiven. Now, I was... I was absolutely certain that I had not heard properly the words of the leader of the free world. Because in the political classes, left and right, Democrat and Republican, you embarrass the president, you are cut off, persona non grata. It's a kind of divorce. Tim who? I never knew him. Did he work here? And so I tried again. Looking the president directly in the eyes, I said, Mr. President, I owe, he said, you know, he said, grace and mercy are real. He said, Tim, I have known grace and mercy in my own life. Mr. President, I said, I owe you a categorical apology. I said, I have no one to blame but me, myself, and I. I said, you gave to Jenny and me the greatest professional honor of a lifetime. I said, I am so sorry. He said, Tim, for the third time, you're forgiven. Forgiveness is real. I'm extending to you categorical grace and mercy. He said, now we can talk about all this if you'd like, or we can talk about the last eight years. And in good George W. Bush fashion, he said, I'll let you choose. I couldn't believe it. And then he said something even more remarkable. He said, please sit down. Sit down? Over here, he said. And he pointed to the chair in front of the fireplace in the Oval Office, where the vice president or a world leader sits when they come to visit the president. Not a poor, deceitful plagiarist like me. We talked about war, rumor of war, two hard-fought 
campaigns. We prayed together. I stood up to leave. We gave each other a bro hug. I thought, I will never see this man. And he said to me, oh, and by the way, I want you to bring Jenny and your sons here next week so that I can tell them what a good father and husband you've been. This is not of the political class. This man was about to validate me between, you know, before my wife and children at the lowest crisis of my life. And he was as good as his word. They came the next week to the Oval Office, gifts, hugs, photographs, and by God's mercy and grace, we have been friends with the Bushes since, and never, not once, a mention of any of this. You know, failure, failure, not success. I mean failure introduces us to ourselves. It actually teaches us who we actually are. I have learned there are two kinds of crises in life. One kind of crisis is you can't do anything about it. A tornado hits your house, God forbid. But the other kind of crisis was mine, of my own making, ultimately hurting deeply those I cared about most, but above all, above all, hurting the relationship between Jesus Christ and myself. I didn't come to lecture or sermonize. I came to share with you the power of the limitless grace and mercy and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the season where we are all heading to Jerusalem together. I'll conclude by saying this. My, my favorite poet didn't begin a Christian, but he, he ended his life as a Christian, T.S. Eliot. And of all of the great essays and poetry he ever wrote, I will never, ever forget his beautiful line that humility Humility is endless. And if you have forgotten everything I have said the minute you leave this wonderful chapel this morning, the one thing that I hope you will remember, because it is as true as anything is true, is that there is an actual measurable power in humility and gratitude. Humility and gratitude go together in the Christian life. So Dan, with that, I'll say God bless all of you, God bless Columbia, and God bless the greatest country in the history of man, the United States of America. Thank you all very much. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes 
and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.